we as a country, our, our educational performance is nowhere near as good as our economic performance. And that spells disaster for the future because your educational performance will be your economic performance in 20 years time. That's just a fact. Coming up on British Thought Leaders, I sit down with Chris McGovern, a former teacher who now chairs the Campaign for Real Education. Chris has advised top levels of government on educational policy and presses for improving standards through high-quality teaching. Most teachers do actually want to teach their subject and they get, they get put off by all the woke ideology which is now infesting our classrooms. And of course, a large number are leaving, up to, in some areas, 40% within five years. They want to teach math, but no, that's not what's important, it's teaching the work ideology. So it is putting people off. He warns about the infiltration of our children's education by political ideology. Children see things fairly simply. They, they believe in goblins and witches and fairies and giants and ogres, and they don't have issues about gender identity. That's, that's for adults. And the problem we have in schools is that too often adults foist their anxieties onto children. Leave the children alone. I'm Lee Hall and this is British Thought Leaders. Chris McGovern, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. It's a pleasure. Every summer we have the results, the GCSE, the A-level results, mm. and we generally give the impression that new records are being set and they kind of make you think, oh wow, education's getting better and better. Is that true or is there a bit more to the story? No, it's completely untrue. It's, it's like a 1984 Orwellian statement. We've actually had schools closed for the best part of two years on and off during the COVID lockdown. And with schools closed, the, the exam results went through the roof. So the, the lesson to be drawn from the closure of schools is that you close schools, educational standards improve. It's obviously it's a nonsense and it's a great lie. If you go back to the late 80s, I and my, one or two of my colleagues at Lewis Priory School in Sussex, I was head of department and a large comprehensive, we, we said that the new exam then coming in, which is called GCSE, it's still around, was actually quite a flawed exam. It was diluting knowledge. And we argue that actually you should keep the old exam is the, what we call the old grammar school exam. It's GCE O level. Right. That, by the way, is still used in Singapore. We sell it. We sell it to the Singaporeans, but don't allow it here. So there was a there was a big contest back in the late 80s. We argued for retaining at least the choice of the old, more traditional exam, which Singapore and other places kept. But we, we were pushed aside. We lost our jobs. And I was uh, then I moved into the private sector. But actually, that contest then pointed the way, the, the way things would go in the future, because actually, in, back in those days, at GCSE, perhaps 39, 40% would get a, a t one of the top grades, a, a to C as it was then. Now it's, it's 70%, and, and at A level, similar grade inflation. The, 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 uh, it's, it's nearly 40% last summer of children, or 18-year-olds are hardly children, they got A's or A-stars, they got the top grades. So you can no longer differentiate between the Isaac Newtons and the decent physicists. You can't do that because everybody's passing. So it's like the currency is corrupted. If you go to, back, look back in history, the Weimar Republic, the currency, the Deutschmark was worthless. If you go to Zimbabwe today or Venezuela, the currency is worthless. Well, the examination currency in the UK is effectively worthless. It doesn't tell us anything, it carries little value. So inflation has undermined the system. And uh, it's also cheated children because the very best can no longer shine. And, and 
it cheats employers because they have children who have qualifications but actually can't do what it says on the qualification certificate. So increasingly, we find from employers telling us they ignore those GCSE results and A-level results. Mm. They just focus on what those children can do and they will give them their own tests. Universities, of course, they like the grade inflation. They, they have their own grade inflation with degrees. They, they want to pull people into the universities. So they're happy to see plenty of children succeeding, but it's not real success, it's fake success. We used to have the 11 plus, which decided if children could go to grammar school or not. But that was kind of cast out as unfair and replaced with more of a postcode system. And is that system any more fair? What, what effect has that had on Well, let me put my hand up and say I, I failed the 11 plus. I went to what's called a secondary modern school for two years. Even though, according to Mensa, I shouldn't have failed it. I'm, I'm in the top 2%. I still failed 11 plus. So if anybody has a grievance about 11 plus, it should be me. But nevertheless, I think the 11 plus was a lot fairer for all this. There were issues with it. There was a lot fairer than the current system. The current system is that if you can buy a house in the catchment area of a good state school, then you'll chart and get into the school. You're, according to the Social Mobility Unit, which is a, a government organisation, you're 25 times more likely to go to a good school if you, go, if you live in a good area. And the failing schools are 25 times more likely to be in poor areas. So these days we talk a lot about privilege and, 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 about, and about advantage. Well, the real advantage is not between, so say, private schools and state schools. It's between state schools. And, and you have good schools and the demand is very high. And you have poor schools and poor areas. So the 11 plus wasn't perfect. And, there were, and it, there's a case to say, look, maybe it was too early. Maybe we should move to a middle school system, which operated to some extent in the UK in certain parts of the country. So maybe you should have a primary school perhaps to the age of eight or nine, and then a middle school to 13. And then at 13, you should go along an, either an academic pathway or a vocational pathway. Nothing revolutionary about this. It's what they do in many countries around the world. In, in Switzerland, which is a fairly successful system, they, 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 do, they have uh, academic or, or, or vocational pathways at the age of 11. And they do it not so much on 11 plus. They don't do it on 11 plus. They do it by the recommendations of the head teacher and by agreement. And you know, the problem is in, in Britain, I think, is that we're too obsessed by by the snobbery of getting into an academic school. We, we need to get away from that. But the 11 plus is not great, but it's better than the alternative, which is selection by postcode. That's unfair and it's grossly unfair. You mentioned Singapore and Switzerland. Could you give us some context as to how we stack up against other countries? Well, yes, every, every three years, although somewhat delayed now, we have international uh, assessment tests run by the OECD, the International Number Crunchers. They're called the PISA tests, Profile for International Student Assessment. They're seen as fairly authoritative, and there should be every three years. COVID has interfered with the process, but later this year, we'll get the new, the new round of these PISA scores. And we don't do very well compared to our economy. I mean, we, we are one of the world's biggest economies, although we are in trouble. But in, in terms of our academic attainment, we're sort of mid-second division. We're not, we're not in the top 10. We're down in the sort of the, the, the next rung, if you like. And though ministers will say, government ministers will say, and they'll say, they'll say it all the time, oh, you know, we're not doing too badly, but we're better than we were three years ago. But yes, but we're worse than we were 20 years ago on those tests. The fact is that the top countries, Singapore is often top, Shanghai is often near the top. But in, and, and, you know, the Eastern Asian uh, countries do exceptionally well. They have a style of teaching which is more traditional. But even within Europe, there are countries such as Estonia and Poland who do very well. Estonia is a shining example 
of how to run an education system. It's more traditional than ours, mm. uh, and it's European, and it's up there beating or, or equivalent to places such as South Korea. So we as a country, our, our educational performance is nowhere near as good as our economic performance. And that spells disaster for the future because your educational performance will be your economic performance in 20 years' time. That's just a fact. And so we have to sort that out. And I'm not sure, sure we're going about it particularly well, but there are some successes. We mentioned grammar schools. We had Sir Graham Brady on recently. He gave up his ministerial job over this issue. What are your thoughts on grammar schools? The numbers are dwindling now. Uh, we need hundreds thousands more grammar schools uh, because they cater for children who have academic ability. But alongside those thousands more grammar schools, particularly, by the way, in poorer areas, alongside those grammar schools, we need very good, very well-resourced technical schools or vocational schools. They need to be better resourced in many ways because vocational training tends to be more expensive. So the problem we have is see, people who argue against grammar schools will say, well, it's, it's sheep and goats at 11, it's not fair. I would say, no, it should be about horses for courses. Children should go along the pathway which suits them. The big problem in the UK is that we have the snobbery of the grammar school is better. We need to get to a situation where people can understand that if you're a plumber or an engineer or a hairdresser or a beautician, you're not inferior to a historian like me or a classicist or whatever. That, and actually, you may earn a great deal more money. Now, it's, it's a big issue in Britain. We always assume the grammar school is better, and it's unfair. Therefore, we close them down. Interestingly, we still have grammar schools in Northern Ireland. Uh, we have them in England as well, not very many, 160 or so. But in Northern Ireland, we have grammar schools. And every year, Northern Ireland gets better results than the rest of the UK. They have a grammar school and secondary modern school system, a more traditional system. So whilst I don't want to hanker back to a system which is from the 1950s and before, the fact is we do need to educate children in line with their aptitude. That could be within a comprehensive school, provided there was a grammar school stream and a vocational stream. It could happen in a, it's called a bilateral system. We shouldn't close our minds to that. It doesn't have to be separate institutions, and children can mix for certain things. But what good is it putting children who are not academic onto courses which are academic, when they could perhaps use in their hands. And for heaven's sake, Britain has a huge problem of labor shortages. We have to import uh, immigrants. We need immigrants because they can do the jobs which our young people can't do. So practical side of things is not being served by our education system. How do you think we can deal with the snobbery? It's, it's, it's a big, big problem. And, and I think part of the reason is that uh, schools themselves and teachers themselves are not well enough informed about the world of work. They've come through an education system, they've gone to universities, training college. They, know, they don't know enough about the world of work. And children, actually, they need to understand where their education takes them. And certainly, I've taught for 35 years. What I find is that children can be quite receptive to the idea of getting information about what's going on in the real world. I remember talking to a televised debate, actually, on the BBC children's programme. I was, I was talking to children in inner-city London, actually about homework. But it was, and it was, the children didn't want to do homework, and, and I was up against a union leader who said, yes, you shouldn't be doing homework. I went in, and they said to me, the BBC apologised, sorry, you're going to lose this debate, but at least speak your corner. I spoke to the children. These are 9, 10, 11-year-olds. And I said, look, do you know what they're doing in, Korea, in South Korea and in, and in Shanghai and in Tokyo? They're all doing homework and you're falling behind. And you know you're three years behind by the age of 15, according to those PISA tests I mentioned earlier. Did they, after the debate, they wanted to do homework. So much to the surprise of the BBC, they never show this, by the way, they showed it once. 
they all wanted, they nearly all wanted to do homework. They couldn't believe it, the, the presenters. Yeah, because children are competitive. They want to get on. So uh, we've got to get across to children that vocational may mean actually that they have a very happy life and they make a lot of money. And, but other kids, of course, are, are academic. And that's fine for them. They'll, they'll go into different professions. But we, we should never look down on what we might say are trades. We also have around 7% of children going to the fee-paying private schools. How much of an advantage do you think they have? Well, I spent half my career in, in private schools, so, and I became head of a private school, so I'm fairly familiar. Uh, I, I think looking at the divide bet between state and private is misleading because it should really be a divide between good schools and less good schools. Now, there, there are many, many good schools in the private sector, but there are also many good schools in the state sector. And if you could buy a house in the catchment area, you can get into those schools. So I would say it's less of a divide between state and private, but where private schools tend to do better is in what we might say are the extracurricular activities and the range of activities. So when you look at the Olympic Games and look at the team, the British team, well, it's half of them from public school, 7% go, but half the team. You look at the cricket team, the rugby team, a lot of these people who are successful in life are going to private schools. So they may not be getting educationally that much a better deal, although some of them are. There's some great schools, of course. But in terms of the extracurricular and the confidence that that brings, private schools offer a great deal. Um, I, I don't think we can solve the question by saying we need to put more money into, into state schools. That, to me, is a complete red herring because, actually, we spend more on per person in this country than almost any other country in the world. And what is a great surprise to a lot of people is that the majority of staff in state schools in the UK are not teachers. They are support staff. I think we need to look at that. And I've written about this for the Conservative Home website. It's, it's on the web now. Um, if we're putting the, uh, too much money into support staff, we need to ask why. We do need to recruit good teachers, and therefore we need to pay them well. But that would mean cutting back on some of the support staff. We have... 250, 280,000 support staff. Some of these, are, many of these, are classroom assistants. We need some classroom assistants. Of course, we do, and some of them do a great job. We don't need as many. And if you go to those, if you go to a country such as Vietnam, uh, they have large classes, 40, 50. Don't have classroom assistants, or maybe, or very, very few. And they're doing exceptionally well educationally, often better than the UK. And the OECD, the international number crunchers. They made it very clear, it's not about spending money. Educational attainment is not about spending money. It's about how well you teach the children. So why is it, I ask the question, we have great public schools in this country, but close to where we're interviewing, doing this interview now is Westminster School, great school. And there are other great schools around, highly academic, but those children down the road at Westminster School, highly academic, they're on average doing less well in mathematics tests than the children of the street cleaners in Shanghai. And why is that? It's because of the way they're taught. And slowly in this country, we begin to wake up to the fact that some of the methods being used in, in Eastern Asia in particular were the methods we used in the 50s and before. And they're coming back. They're coming back into English schools. How much of this problem is embedded in the, the culture and the ways of thinking that come from teacher training college? It's massively important, hugely important, because the, the reason we fall behind in education, to some extent, or children fail, is because of the quality of the teaching. High quality teaching, and, and we talked about private schools, often that's very high in private schools. High quality teaching means you get good results. Often there's that, what, what is regarded as high quality teaching produces good results, and it's often more traditional. Not necessarily so, but more traditional. But we need high quality teachers. And, and so until we can improve teacher training, we're not going to get that. And the question is, how on earth do you 
uh, even get onto a teacher training course these days unless you sign up to the woke agenda. You, if you go to a teacher training college, university, you won't get a place on an education course if you have the views of the campaign for real education, which are more traditional. The main thing is, never mind whether you can teach maths or physics, what are your views on gender? What are your views on diversity? What are your views on equality of outcome? That's what matters, never mind the rest. That's where we are. So what can you do about it? Well, it's very, very difficult because schools are also involved in the teacher training and therefore it's become a huge issue. But the government have to confront this. What I would say is that teachers should be well paid, but they should also be paid to some extent on the, the results and the improvement in the school, not on whether they are diverse enough or whether they are inclusive enough. Because all those things will follow. Of course, we want schools to be inclusive and diverse and to hang together. But the way schools succeed is by getting good results and by having educated children. And when I say good results, I don't mean fake results, which we're getting at the moment. So we have to do something about the teacher training college. But teacher training colleges is a bit like going, I would say, into Chairman Mao's China. That's where we are. It's the cultural revolution in action, and it's firmly embedded. We've had several guests on the show talking about the political indoctrination of children in schools and saying that it's a big problem. I know you've also mentioned it in the teacher training as well. Um, so I just wonder, like, uh, how big of an issue do you think this is? It's a minefield, and the government don't know how to handle it. They're, they're supposed to be offering advice or providing advice, for example, on how to deal with trans pupils. Uh, but that delay, that's been delayed yet again. So schools really don't know what to do. They're, 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 it's, it it's a quagmire, and I sympathise. Because most teachers actually, in, in, I've taught for a long time, many years, most teachers do actually want to teach their subject, and they get, they get put off by all the woke ideology, which is now infesting our classrooms. And, of course, a large number are leaving, up to, in some areas, 40% within five years. They want to teach math, but no, that's not what's important, it's teaching the woke ideology. So it is putting people off. And how can we, you know, how can we rectify this? Well, it's with, with great difficulty, because we are talking about an ideology. It's a religion. We have situations now where children are deciding they will identify uh, with, with another, with the, with the opposite sex, with opposite, and, or they're identifying with a cat, or even in some cases, I heard one case of other, with a moon. And, and teachers are castigating and criticizing children who don't support the child who's trying to identify with something else. You know, the Prime Minister has talked a lot about the importance of mathematics in schools. He wants to expand that, and that's really important. But he should talk about the importance of biology as well, because a lot of children need to understand that there are two sexes. And yes, of course, you know, it's very important that we understand and are sympathetic to children who may feel more feminine or may feel more masculine or whatever. And, you know, if you read Enid Blyton, a children's writer back in the 50s, she has a character called Georgina, who's a tomboy. That's fine. No problem with that. And as a head teacher, I always told my children, they must treat other people as they wish to be treated. That's it. And that's all there is, all you need to know. But once you get children saying, well, I'm transitioning to a boy, but I'm a girl, or the other way around, that causes huge confusion. The government needs to clarify this situation, and they also need to teach, make sure that children learn biology, and why there are only two sexes. And that within that, of course, there's, there's, there's a rainbow, if you like. There are boys who are more feminine, there are girls who are more masculine, that's fine, and we, we, we have to support those children, and it's fine, no problem at all, but, but they do need to learn biology. So it is a quagmire, and we've, we're still in the quagmire about identity and about the woke ideology. It's putting people off the profession, and you know, we need to raise the status of the profession. We need to focus more on what schools can, should be able to do, which is to teach academic subjects and, and the sports and music and drama and so forth. And they need to avoid 
what is um, an ideological, semi-religious crusade which is currently taking hold. There is some resistance to that, and the people who resist it do need to be supported. But children themselves are getting quite confused. That even infants, four or five, are going into uh, personal social health education lessons and coming out confused. They're, you know, they're having their world destroyed. Children see things fairly simply. They, they believe in goblins and witches and fairies and giants and ogres, and they don't have issues about gender identity. That's, that's for adults. And the problem we have in schools is that too often adults foist their anxieties onto children. Leave the children alone. If they read fairy tales, they've got all the frightening stuff in there, you know, and wolves are eating grandmothers and so forth. There's plenty of horror stories there. It prepares children for the world. We must leave the children alone, certainly up in primary school, and stop foisting our anxieties onto the children. That's my view. You mentioned there's some people who are resisting. Do you get them contacting your organisation? We do. P people will contact the Campaign for Education in despair we're a bit like the sort of fourth emergency service. They will come to us. But, you know, parents in particular are often very afraid to speak up because if they speak up, they feel that will damage their child. I sometimes say to parents, you know, we can give you advice and you can work through the school system. You can go to the head teacher, to the governing body to make your feelings known. But ultimately, the only thing that matters, the only thing that will influence the school or the government is media. And, and you know, the campaign for re-education, well, we, we have a lot of media coverage, according to the Times Educational Supplement. We have the second most media coverage of any organization linked to education. And, but parents will be scared of that. And I under totally understand what they don't want to highlight their position and their child. So yes, parents will come to us. They will ask for advice. They will ask, are they going mad or is the school going mad? Uh, and and we, we will support those parents. Some of them will have a religious uh, beliefs could be Christian, could be Muslim, could be any, any religion, or it could just be common sense, you know. I don't want my child to be in the classroom where the identity of some children is a cat or when a boy is clearly not a boy. And in the past, the schools had two purposes, one being obviously imparting of knowledge and the other being imparting of behaviour, teaching children how to think critically and how to be a decent person. But it seems this second strand now has been replaced by another type of behavioural control and, and getting children to kind of follow along with these strange ideologies. Yeah, you talk about knowledge and behaviour, and they were intrinsic to tradition, traditional education, which we would support. But let me, I'm sorry to say, it's not only the behaviour which is declining, it's also the knowledge, the dilution of knowledge. We have knowledge, a knowledge-like curriculum. Michael Gove, whom I advised uh, when he was Education Secretary, is often, he's often praised for trying to beef up the uh, knowledge content of GCE, GCSE and A-level, and, and is praised for that. But actually, I worked with Michael Gove. Michael Gove was nowhere near as tough as some people like to think he was. And he didn't really understand how clever the educational establishment is. Yet you can toughen up the curriculum, but you just lower the pass mark. The reason why Mi Michael Gove did, to some extent, toughen up the exam syllabuses. But we have more children passing than ever, as, you, as we've discussed, inflation of grades. So Michael Gove, yes, he knew he had to try to toughen up the curriculum, but then if the exams become easier in the sense that the, mark, the pass marks are lowered, the whole thing is pulled apart. I started with Michael Gove talking about history. We did a new history uh, curriculum, which is again being revised now, and I've been involved three times in writing the National Curriculum for History. But the National Curriculum for History today 
and people don't want to discuss this because they don't quite get it. It's Sex Pistols history. It's history as anarchy because if you look at the National Curriculum for History, you will find, whilst you have to teach world history or the history of West Africa, there's no requirement, let me stress, no requirement in the law of the National Curriculum to teach a single specific part, event or personality of British history. I say this to MPs occasionally, their eyes glaze over. It can't be the case. Because if you look at the National Curriculum for History, it mentions various people like Churchill, World War I, World War II. And I say there's no requirement. And I say to them, look at the wording. And the wording says about 15 times, these are non-statutory examples of what you could teach. So in other words, you don't have to teach Churchill, you don't have to teach World War I, you do have to teach British history, but you might decide, as most schools do, that maybe a better topic than teaching World War I is to teach, well, should we say Jack the Ripper? Because we've done a survey of what's taught in the 19th century, and it's not well, Queen Victoria, yes, but it's not Nelson, it's not Wellington, it's not Gladstone, it's not Disraeli. Anybody can go onto the internet and check out on the Times Educational Supplement their model lessons, and you will see that almost the most popular lesson in schools in the 19th century is Jack the Ripper. Would you say the national curriculum, or that way of working, is a, a good way to do things? I think it's a straitjacket. And, and actually, to be fair, uh, academies, and most secondary schools are now self-governing academies, financed directly by government. They don't have to do national curriculum, but they all do. They all do, of course. And it is a straitjacket. It tells them what to do and how to do it. We, we believe in, in choice, and we believe schools should step outside the national curriculum when necessary. They shouldn't see it as a straitjacket. They, they will tend to do what they're told to do. But, you know, generally speaking, great teachers and the teachers who leave an impression on children will be prepared to break some of those rules, if you like. They step outside the straitjacket. And if you want to teach a particular topic in more detail, you should be allowed to do it, not feel I've got to get through this, this, and this. And the national curriculum these days, and the way it's inspected, is... is it, it is too narrow, I'd say, and it needs to, we need to trust teachers more. We can't trust them totally because we've seen what's happened, but we need to trust them a little bit more to show a little bit more flexibility and not just say, well, the national curriculum says you have to do this. It's a bit like saying the computer says, no, you can't do that, you've got to do this. Obviously, it'd be great if we could fix some of these things. If I was the fairy godmother and I gave you three wishes, um, the three things that you think could really fix the, the education system here, what would they be? Well, it, it, I would say you wouldn't start from this position. It's a very, very difficult. I think, well, first of all, we should draw hope from the fact that we've seen in Singapore and we've seen in other countries in Asia particularly, they started from a very low base and they've been highly successful. We need to fix teacher training, most of all. We have to sort out this idea that the process of teaching is, is all that matters. It's how you teach matters, but not what you teach. Uh, we've got to get over the idea that we've got to train teachers to understand that children do actually need to learn something, and it's not about political indoctrination. So we've got to somehow reform teacher training. That's absolutely key. We've also got to make sure we attract the brightest and the best teachers. And to do that, we will have to pay them more. I support teachers' demands for a better pay rise. We need to recruit the best, and we can do that within the existing school budget. I'm not talking about spending more money. We need to reduce the number of classroom assistants and the surplus money we need to support, use to support and recruit good teachers. In this country, in the UK, we tend to recruit from the lower echelons of graduates, the lower third. In Finland, which is often seen as a very successful education system, they recruit from the, from the top 10% of graduates. And they don't pay them that much more, actually, but they, but they do recruit. We, we've got to recruit from the, best, from the best. And if it means paying them more, then we, to attract them, fine. 
Uh, and that means, of course, we therefore need to go on and look at the curriculum and look at the exam system. We need to fix that because the exam system hasn't got any credibility. How do you fix the currency which is broken, which is inflated? Well, you start again. Effectively, you have to go back to a system, almost a new gold standard. You have to have new exams, which are more rigorous. But also, you need to make sure that the children go along an academic pathway or a vocational pathway. So if we can fix that, we would be going in the right direction. We need to have pathways which are academic and which are vocational well-paid teachers and fix the teacher training. Those would be the three priorities. I just wanted to touch briefly on universities as well. I mean, we have a lot of young people now spending a lot of time and a lot of money on going to university and then finding at the end that their degree doesn't actually get them a job. Yeah. Do you think the value of a university degree has gone down and, and we need to change how we approach it somewhat? Yeah, absolutely. The, the Far too many youngsters go to university. 50% was the aim under Tony Blair. He, he introduced that. Uh, and the university is very happy with that because they, they want the punters in, and, and many former polytechnics are now universities. But so many youngsters are ill-equipped Ill academically and in terms of their skills to go to university. They go because it's the thing to do and the schools persuade them to go. Um, and they get a debt, 50 grand is a normal debt, which they're never going to pay back, and therefore the taxpayer picks up the bill, which is now running into tens of billions. What we need in this country, I, I, I would suggest, is perhaps 25% of youngsters going to university, no more. We have excellent universities doing an excellent job, but they are for academic children. We don't need children to go to university to do a course on surfing or golf management or comics or David Beckham as a unit. Well, we need to get to the, the, the academic subjects and, of course, you know, some of the and engineering and stuff. They're very, very important. So we've got to somehow ensure that those who need to go to university, the academic children go, and those who don't need to go aren't persuaded to go. That, I mean, I personally would favor no fees at all. I've, I think children who earn a place academically, they should be supported, as I was when I went to university. You know, we had a grant in those days. I don't think we should be running up debt. Children who qualify for university because they're academically good enough, I think should be supported by the taxpayer, but we need to reduce the number by at least 50%. But also, the, the, half the university should be closed down, they should be made into polytechnics as they once were, and they should be training children in vocational skills. That would be profitable for the country, it would mean some university lecturers would lose their jobs, and I'm sorry about that. But ultimately, what are, what are we about? We're about supporting young people and supporting our country. It's in the best interest, of our, best interest of our country to have a trained workforce, as well as an academically trained, a vocationally trained. So universities have failed, I'm afraid, and they are very discontent. The youngsters are very often very disappointed. And yes, they are, they're overqualified and underemployed. I spoke at a conference of university admissions tutors a few years ago in the presence of senior government figures. And uh, it was very, very self-congratulatory. Uh, and I spoke, and this was, this was seen by journalists, so they, it's on the record. I spoke and I said, do you understand that half of your graduates are leaving this un your universities and they're working as in the coffee bar? like the one over the road, and there was a hushed silence in the room, a total silence. It was witnessed. After that conference, it was a day's conference with, with, the, you know, with the government equality czar and so forth. After that conference, three individual admissions shooters came up to me quietly and privately and said, Chris, thank God you said that, because mm. no one else will. No one else will tell the truth. Chris McEvan, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you.